Today's the third Sunday of Advent, um, and I'm thrilled to be able to uh, share the Word of God with you through preaching today, in addition to being able to share it in song. Um, and of course, Advent, as we discuss when we, when we go through it, is this, this period before Christmas, right? This joyful anticipation in the weeks that lead up to Christmas Day. And at Vintage, we acknowledge this season of Advent each year because we want to let this season be used to let every heart prepare him room for the celebration of the birth of Christ. And of course, the word Advent, um, as we've talked about, simply means, anybody remember? Nobody? Oh, we talked about it at MC, if our kids know. Yeah, coming or arrival. Advent means, yeah. Coming or arrival. So this Advent series uh, is meant to prepare your heart to celebrate the coming of, of Jesus. And not just the fact that he did come, but the fact that it is a wonder worth celebrating. Whether Jesus was born in December or not, the incarnate Son of God is worth celebration. And he's actually worth a lot more than just a few weeks. Uh, he's worth um, our celebration every day. But we do have a season dedicated to remember this, and we hope that these sermons will prepare your heart to celebrate this wonder of the coming of Christ, both the first time uh, in a manger in Bethlehem, uh, roughly 2,000 years ago, or a little more, and in anticipation of his second advent, his return to consummate his victory, to make all things new again. And so whether or not Advent holds any significance for you, I know some of you may have, you know, grew up with the tradition, some didn't. If you've been around vintage, you, you, you know, at least been exposed to Advent, but it may or may not be something that you, you know, have a lot of concern with. Um, but I, whether it's significant to you or not, I think that this season of anticipation sort of resonates with how we often think about things in our life. And I'm not really talking about religious things. I'm just talking about the way that we live. We are people of anticipation. We're, we're wired for to, uh, looking for the, the good thing on the horizon, right? And um, this is uh, not a very uh, holy example, but it's one that came to mind the other day. Um, I was having a conversation at work the other day. Uh, you know, I work at uh, Northwest Community College through the week, and um, we have a newly hired project manager in the IT department who uh, I met the other day. And the reason she was hired is because uh, we are implementing a new computer system at, at Northwest. And I don't want to bore you with, you know, my details about work. When I do, I, I, like, I'll come home and tell Lindsay stuff. I can just see her eyes glaze over and she really, you know, will pretend to be interested. And I appreciate that from her. But anyway, um, if you ever have been around a college, if you've ever gone to college, you know, you have some sort of online portal where you register for classes and look up your grades and that sort of thing, right? Well, that's usually like a, a user side of what's called a student information system or an inter, interpli, enterprise resource planning system. Basically, it's the computer system that the college runs on. It houses all the records. Um, anyway, I'm going too deep. Anyway, but it has everything, right? It's the student records, HR stuff, um, literally everything, uh, purchasing, everything the college does is housed in this, this, this one um, computer uh, system, right? And so we got a, we're getting a new one because the one that Northwest has is garbage, right? And so I noticed over the past like several months, anytime some problem comes up at work, you know, whether, whether it's like a student issue or, 
um, some process that's not really going efficiently or whatever. Any, any kind of problem at work, um, you know, we'll, we'll try to solve it and whatever. But the conversation, regardless of who's involved, almost always ends with, well, but this will be different when Oracle's here, right? Because Oracle's going to be the new, the new system we're getting, right? All of our hope is in Oracle at Northwest. And so we think that Oracle's going to fix everything, and it's probably not true, Right? I mean, if you got a problem with a process or whatever, probably a piece of technology is not going to be the solution to your problems. But it's nice to hope in something, right? When something's really not working well, we say, oh, but it's going to be better when we get the new system, when, when, Oracle's, when Oracle's coming. And so, you know, when we have a, a, a process that's not working, like, say, hypothetically, um, you know, a paper-based process where a single piece of actual printed paper has to be signed by somebody and then routed to five different offices for, you know, somebody else to sign it before it can be processed. Hypothetically, if you had issues like that, you know, we would look at them and say, oh, but it's going to be better. We're moving into the future. We have, we have Oracle, right? It's, it's, it's coming. Anyway, I think this is the kind of people that we are, though, right? We like to look to the future, for something better, because we're people of anticipation. And maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you, uh, you're you ha- having a tough time at home or a tough time at work. You think, oh, but I got vacation coming. You know, it's like counting down the days. Oh, man, school's terrible, but graduation's coming. Right, Sam? Counting down the days yet? Right, we look to the future, to whatever good thing is on the horizon, because that's the kind of people we are often. And so when we plan an exciting trip, or when people get engaged to be married, or they're expecting a baby, or whatever. Uh, we look forward to these things. And in some sense, I mean, hopefully we don't idolize them, but in some sense they give us hope, right? Because we know um, that whatever we are enduring right now might not be pleasant. You know, it might be mundane. It might be painful, depending on what you're going through. But even if that's the case... We're going to get through it because we get this thing on the horizon that's, that's coming, right? There's, there's joy uh, waiting for us just over the horizon. And even if what we face right now in our lives is downright terrible, we are wired to look for a future hope, for an end to our suffering, no matter how trivial or serious that might be for you, to anticipate future glory. In fact, Paul uh, tells us this in the passage that Lisa read for us just a moment ago, Romans 8, 18 through 25. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And this this describes us. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. We have the first fruits of the Spirit and we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. A hope that is seen is not hope, but for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So we're wired to anticipate the glory that is to be revealed to us and to allow that anticipation um, to let the sufferings of this present time be, uh, to, to, for us to be able to endure them. 
And really, this is the spirit of Advent. All right? I, that's why we, do, we don't just call this Christmas. You know, the, the sort of cultural baggage of this holiday is, you know, it's the Christmas season, the holiday season, whatever. But the reason we, we want to do Advent, specifically Advent, is because it's about waiting. It's about creation groaning and longing. Having this patience to hope for what we do not see. To groan inwardly as we eagerly await rescue. And really, this, that, this idea, this anticipation, this longing, groaning for, for future glory, it's like the theme of almost all of Scripture, actually. We've been looking at how uh, different biblical accounts, specifically in the Old Testament, point to the anticipation of the coming Messiah. And so two weeks ago, um, Bryce shared with us from Exodus how the Passover in Egypt, when Pharaoh refused to let God's people go, and, he, uh, got, and God struck down all the firstborn except those in households that were marked with the blood of the spotless lamb, how those things pointed to our need for a perfect lamb to take away the sins of the world. Last week, Stephen showed us how God uh, established a kingdom for his people. But the kings that, that he gave them were imperfect kings. And we saw how God was establishing, actually, an everlasting kingdom. And how the good yet imperfect King David pointed to the need for a perfect king to rule eternally. How the man after God's own heart pointed us to the one who was God's heart in human flesh. So today, we're kind of walking through these, these little snapshots in the Old Testament chronologically. We got, you know, the Passover in Egypt, fast forward King David. We're going to fast forward a little more in the Old Testament today and take one more chronological step toward the birth of Christ. And we're going to examine a period in the Old Testament uh, that's after the kings, uh, or at least the good ones, um, when God's people were once again taken into captivity. And we're going to see... How even in this time of hopelessness, there are shadows of God's miraculous rescue. And they foreshadow the coming of the ultimate rescue that, of course, is in Christ. And so we're going to look at some stories that you've definitely heard <laughs> today. Um, but hopefully we can see how those familiar stories point us to Jesus in a new way. Well... Maybe you'll see it in a new way. They don't point us in a new way. So let me give you a quick sort of Cliff's Notes uh, history, Old Testament history, to get you to the point in the Old Testament narrative that we're going to look at today. Um, again, we're going to be looking at three different stories. Um, so again, last week we saw how even though God ruled over his people, the people wanted a king. So God said, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. Um, but he gave them Saul, you know, not a, not a good one. So they could kind of see the error of their desire. And then after Saul, God gave his people King David, um, who, again, was a good king for the most part. He, you know, he's messed up a lot of stuff. But um, as far as kings go, he, he did okay. And then uh, David's son, King Solomon, ruled over God's people and saw a great prosperous period for the people of Israel. And yet, only about 165 years after the establishment of this monarchy with, with Saul becoming king. Um, so basically, Saul becomes king. And then 165 years later, the kingdom splits in two. So you got Saul, David, Solomon, 165 years. And then the kingdom is in disarray. Um, and when, so the reason this happened is Solomon died. And uh, he 
there was a struggle for the throne after that. His sons and his military commanders uh, fought over who would be the next king. Solomon had blessed his son, Rehoboam, to be the new king. But there was this other guy, Jeroboam, who was Solomon's servant, who was influential. He was a military guy. And so each of these guys claimed to be God's successor to the throne. And so the kingdom split in two. And ten of the tribes of Israel went north. They followed Jeroboam as their king. They called themselves the kingdom of Israel. And then the two tribes that went south, and they made Rehoboam their king, they called themselves the kingdom of Judah. And so they're still all God's people, but they're split into ten and two, right? Um, and the northern, northern kingdom of Israel, uh, the ten tribes there, rebelled against God, of course, as we are prone to do, and as basically as the history of the entire um, narrative of God's people. Um, and it was only 200 years after the split before the Assyrians destroyed the kingdom of Israel, those 10 tribes. And, and actually, there's, there's different you know, uh, research and things, but we don't even know what happened, really, to most of those tribes, most of the people uh, in the northern kingdom. And so then we're left with the two tribes, the house of Judah, you know, which was, uh, it was Judah and another tribe, but they just called themselves Judah. And less than 150 years after the 10 northern tribes uh, get wiped out, during the 6th century B.C., God allowed the southern kingdom of Judah, which likewise, likewise continued to sin, to fall to the Babylonian Empire. All right, so if you phased out for the history stuff, come back here. Uh, got, you, got, you, got you called up on the Old Testament story. Um, so basically, the remnant of God's people that's left has been taken over by Babylon, and they're, they're captive there. Uh, by the Babylonian Empire. And yet even during this period of exile and captivity, God's hand was still at work, preserving a remnant of his people, carrying out his rescue mission. And we can see whispers of the rescuer in some familiar biblical stories. And we're going to do that today. So, so I want to take a look at some very familiar stories from this period of captivity in Israel's history. And I want to see how they point to the long-expected Messiah who would ransom captive Israel. So I stole my sermon title from O Come, Come, Emmanuel, Ransom Captive Israel. So, first story we're going to look at today. And the outline is like, you don't really even need to, to you know, worry about it. It just shows you the three stories. Uh, the first story we're going to look at today, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Stephen's going to slander me if I botch that name, Abednego. Um, and the fiery furnace from Daniel chapter 3. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, just, just want to let you know the reference if you want to go back and read this familiar story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So in 586 BC, the Babylonian armies, ra- armies ravaged Jerusalem and, uh, and the land of the southern kingdom of Judah, and they deported most of the people back to Babylon. And the king of Babylon during this time was King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm sure I'm not saying that right either, but Nebuchadnezzar. And he put some advisors in place from God's people, and they were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he put them in positions of leadership in Babylon. And then after that, uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a statue built, um, probably of himself, and he commanded all of Babylon to worship that statue. But of course, these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were committed to worshiping only the one true God. And so they said, they said, no, we will not worship your idol. So Nebuchadnezzar gives Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego an ultimatum. He says, whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. 
Right, you know all this. Um, when Nebuchadnezzar heard that these three men would not comply, he said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? If you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? And these three men answered King Nebuchadnezzar. He said, Who is, who is the God? Who will deliver you? And they said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And you know the rest of the story from Daniel 3. Starting in verse 19, it says, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. And because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. And then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste and he declared to his counselors... Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, prefects, prefects, and governors, and king's counselors gathered together. And they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Indeed, no other God can rescue in this way. Nebuchadnezzar got it right in the end. And in the midst of harsh tyranny, unjust rule, and utter hopelessness, God made a way to rescue. And I'm sure you've noticed this before, but God didn't just protect Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the flames. God was present with them in the flames. Indeed, no other God rescues in this way, for no other God comes to dwell with his people to make his presence known and his saving power revealed for all to see. 
this apparent son of the gods that Nebuchadnezzar saw there walking around unbound in the fire was a foreshadowing of the very son of God who would come to deliver us not from the flames of a tyrant king, but to deliver us from the blazing punishment that we face for our own sin. And once again, he would accomplish this great rescue by coming to dwell among us. So we see this foreshadowing of the great rescuer there in the fiery furnace. We also see it in a story a few chapters later with a friend of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their friend Daniel. In the story of Daniel in the lion's den in Daniel 6, we see another glimpse, a similar glimpse of God's coming rescue during this period of exile. This was under the rule of uh, two kings later, um, uh, but still in Babylon, still during this period of captivity. And the king now is a guy named Darius. And Daniel who, like his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, became a close advisor to the king because he was able to interpret dreams. God had given him this gift, much like Joseph was able to you know, earn that influence through interpreting dreams. We see that with Daniel as well. But, of course, the non-Jew officials who were close to the king, they didn't like that this guy, this Jew, was given influence over King Darius. And so... They decided to make a plot, way to get, find a way to get rid of him. And so they do what you do when you're trying to get rid of somebody. You look for skeletons in their closet, right? You dig up old tweets and you, uh, you know, do what you can to get rid of them. But they couldn't find anything on Daniel. Because Daniel was a man above reproach. And so in order for them to get rid of Daniel, they had to set a trap. And so they went to King Darius. They appealed to his pride. And they had him agree to a law, a lot like Nebuchadnezzar's, that anyone who prayed to anyone other than the king should be fed to the lions. And I don't know what it is about these folks in Babylon, but they got creative punishments. Fiery furnace, if you don't worship the one true God, you get torn limb from limb. And now if you don't pray, if you pray to anybody but King Darius, you get fed to the lions. Um, And they knew that this would work, this, this plan to get rid of Daniel would work because they knew Daniel was going to break this, this law because they knew this guy prayed to his God every day. And sure enough, they get King Darius to sign this law and they go to find Daniel and they find him praying to the one true God. And so they immediately go and they say, Oh, King Darius, guess what? Daniel broke the law. That was their plan all along, of course. The king's actually upset about this. He's not actually furious at Daniel like Nebuchadnezzar was at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's sad because he likes Daniel and he doesn't want to do it, but he feels like he doesn't have a choice because he's already signed this thing into law. And so he throws Daniel to the lions, but he says to him, May your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And of course, you know the rest of the story from Daniel 6 starting at verse 19. It says, Then at the break of day the king arose, and he went in haste to the den of lions. And he came near to the den where Daniel was. And he cried out in a tone of anguish. And the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. 
Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. Because they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones into pieces. And then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Isn't it amazing how that reads uh, like, a, like a messianic prophecy from the, from the mouth of a pagan king who saw the rescue of God? This, this pagan king was so moved by the power of Daniel's God, he declared his kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He didn't say that Babylon would last forever. He said the kingdom of Yahweh would last forever. Because King Darius saw this, this amazing rescue of God, and he understood that the only one who had the power to shut the mouths of lions was the God who created those lions. And the only God who could create lions out of nothing and use them to accomplish his rescue of Daniel, he's the one who also sent the lion of the tribe of Judah, the ultimate rescuer, to accomplish our great rescue. Not through the avoidance of certain death, as in the case with Daniel, but through the conquering of death itself. See, God is always working out his plan to rescue, even when all hope seems lost. And when people catch a glimpse of this rescue, it changes them. you got two pagan kings who are radically transformed by the rescuing power of God. We see uh, another glimpse of the coming Messiah during this period of exile and captivity in the story of Esther from from the book of Esther in the first uh, eight chapters or so. So we're going to read eight chapters of Scripture. I'm just kidding. We're not. You can read it on your own. I'll give you the, the summary version. So near the end of this period of captivity, um, the Persians conquered the Babylonian Empire. And when that happened, many Jews were actually allowed to return to Jerusalem. But many Jews were still under the control of the Persian Empire, which again kind of took over Babylon. So the story of Esther takes place under the rule of a Persian king uh, named Ahasuerus. We'll go with that. Ahasuerus. Close enough? Okay. So this king apparently uh, got angry with his wife because she wouldn't obey him. And so he got rid of his wife. Not exactly biblical grounds for divorce. Uh, And and he gets rid of his first wife, the queen, and to get another wife, he basically holds a beauty pageant. To pick a new queen. And eventually you know that um, this young, beautiful Jewish girl named Esther uh, is chosen for her beauty to be the new queen. Meanwhile, so there's, there's, there's two stories there's, you know, going on at once. Two kind of narratives that come, come together. 
um, there's this guy named Haman who's the chief's, uh, the, excuse me, the king's chief advisor. And there's this guy named Mordecai who is Esther's cousin who's basically like her dad. He, uh, I think he probably raised her or whatever. He's obviously got a lot of influence in, over her life. He's older than her. Um, and so Haman, the king's advisor, gets ticked off at the Jewish guy, Mordecai, um, because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to Haman. So, you know, see, this is sort of a theme, Old Testament. You know, somebody wants to be bowed down to, a person won't do it because they're, you know, trusting one through God, one true God, and bad things happen. Um, so Haman um, applies a uh, crazy logic. He wants to take out his anger against Mordecai by embracing his inner Hitler and wiping out the entire Jewish population. Um, and so somehow he gets the king of Persia to agree to uh, this plan. But meanwhile, the king didn't realize that his new, young, pretty Jew, uh, wife was a Jew. He didn't know that she was a part of the people that he had just signed off on uh, genocide for. And so um, Mordecai uh, finds out about Haman's plot to commit genocide. And he urges Esther to go before the king to petition on behalf of her people, to rescue them. And Esther 4, starting in verse 16, says this. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Oh, yeah, yeah, this, this guy, when you read this, just think of like they're talking to each other. They're actually talking through like servants who are going back and forth. Mordecai and Esther are. So Mordecai told, I guess, the servants to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have, come to, you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young, men, young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. See, Mordecai knew that God was going to rescue one way or another. He said, if you don't, God's going to do it somehow else. But you're going to die. So you better go before the king and advocate for your people. Bring rescue. So she does. Esther uh, breaks the law and goes in to see the king. And she pleads with him on behalf of her people. And uh, the king decides... He hears her, he stops Haman's uh, genocidal plot, and he hangs Haman that very day. And so rescue is accomplished again for God's people. Um, but I want to point out a key difference in this story versus the other two that we've looked at. Now this story, of course, is a great testimony to God's faithfulness to, to rescue. But it's different than the story of Daniel. It's different than the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because in those stories, uh, God shows up in like a big, bold, miraculous way. Right? I mean, you, Daniel says he sent his angel to the lion's den. Um, Nebuchadnezzar sees the Son of God walking in the fire. Right? God shows up in like an undeniable, big, big, big way. But did, did you know that if you read through the book of Esther, did you know God's not even mentioned? God's never mentioned once. In the book of Esther. It's a very human story. And there's no real apparent miracle. I mean there's, there's a great story of deliverance. 
But there's no real apparent miracle. There's no grandiose display of the power of God. And yet, even in his apparent silence, even in lonely exile, even in what seemed like abandonment, God was still accomplishing his secret rescue plan. He was preserving a remnant of his people. See, if Haman's plan had succeeded, Abraham's descendants would have been wiped off the earth. And yet through this rescue, God was fulfilling his promise to Abraham that through his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Even in the midst of captivity, in the silence of exile, God was still working out his redemptive plan. Much of the prophetic words in the Old Testament were written either before or during this period of exile. And much of those prophecies promised certain destruction as a result of the disobedience of God's people. And yet even when we look at these passages that promise destruction for disobedience, we see the anticipation of rescue. And I don't mean just like finite rescue, like Um, you know, release from captivity to foreign nations. Obviously, they looked for that. But you can see something bigger at play in these Old Testament, uh, these, these prophecies that anticipate a rescue. You can see they're not just about rescue from foreign nations. They're about rescue from the captivity of sin and death that had enslaved mankind all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We see this clearly in the prophecy of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. They give us a glimpse of this coming hope. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. In uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible that our family um, has been reading this Advent season, Sally Lloyd-Jones, the author of that, summarizes the prophet Isaiah's words of the anticipation of the coming Messiah like this. Again, this is the words of Sally Lloyd-Jones kind of um, putting Isaiah's prophecy um, into a simple letter from God to his people. It says, Dear little flock, you are wandering away from me like sheep in an open field. You have always been running away from me, and now you're lost. You can't find your way back. But I can't stop loving you. I will come to find you. So I'm sending you a shepherd to look after you and love you, to carry you home to me. You've been stumbling around like people in a dark room. But into the darkness, a bright light will shine. It will chase away all the shadows like sunshine. A little baby will be born. A royal son. His mommy will be a young girl who doesn't have a husband. 
His name will be Emmanuel, which means God has come to live with us. He is one of King King David's children's children's children, the Prince of Peace. Yes, someone is going to come and rescue you, but he won't be who anyone expects. It's the secret rescue plan we made from before the beginning of the world. It's the only way to get you back. But he won't stay dead. I will make him alive again. And one day, when he comes back to rule forever, the mountains and trees will dance and sing for joy. The earth will shout out loud. His fame will fill the whole earth as the waters cover the seas. Everything sad will come untrue. Even death is going to die. And he will wipe away every tear from every eye. Yes, the rescuer will come. Look for him. Watch for him. Wait for him. He will come. I promise. See, the result of God giving us over to our sin is captivity. Slavery to our flesh. It's utter hopelessness and exile. And we feel this hopelessness in the grief of separation that our sin creates. Separation from God. Yet God did not leave us longing in our darkness. He did not leave us in captivity. Though we dwell in an exile of our own making, God sought us out. He came to dwell among us. He took on human flesh to ransom our captive souls, to pay the penalty for our sin, to bring us out of darkness into marvelous light. As we remember what He has done for us this Advent season, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Will you pray with me? Oh God, we thank you for the hope of Advent. Lord, the hope of the coming rescuer. God, we thank you that your word points us to him, Lord, at every turn. And God, thank you that even in the midst of hopelessness, of captivity, of exile, Lord, we see shadows of rescue God, for you have always been about accomplishing your rescue mission of your people that you created before the world began. And God, thank you that nothing can stop your plan to rescue. For no one saves like you. God, thank you that that you don't just broadcast salvation from the sky, but you come to us to walk in the fire with us. To shut the mouths of lions among us. Lord, to accomplish through us uh, a rescue like we could, never, um, we could never find on our own. God, may uh, the anticipation of, our, uh, of the return of Christ, Lord, and our celebration of, of His incarnation. May it give us hope this season. Lord, for we are indeed a people of anticipation. God, and we long uh, for all things to be made new. Lord, for even death to be undone. Lord, we know that that is accomplished through Christ and what he has done for us. 
God, we thank you that um, this Advent season we, we have hope. Lord, not because, um, not because of anything that, that we do this season, um, that, that just the secular traditions and our family things, Lord. Lord, those things give us momentary happiness, Lord, but in Christ we have hope. Lord, so may he be the theme of our season as we celebrate him. And God, as we enter this time of communion, Lord, as we look to what Christ accomplished on the cross and what it means for us, Lord, would you cause us um, to be contrite over our sin, Lord, to approach this moment um, with reverence. Lord, we thank you for all you've done for us in Christ, Lord, and may, may he be the theme of our hope this season. In Jesus' name.